0: Welcome to Familypreneur,
1: the podcast for parent entrepreneurs,
0: raising kidpreneurs.
1: It's time for your weekly dose of inspiration and actionable tips to build your business and find better balance, all while strengthening your family. (laughs) And now we'd like to introduce your host.
0: She's my mom and the bomb.com, Meg Brunson. Brunson. Hey there, welcome to episode number 40 of the Familypreneur podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by the Facebook algorithm. Well, sort of. The Facebook algorithm is always changing and has a really bad reputation among business owners. But when you get to know him, he's not so bad. Understanding the Facebook algorithm is the first step towards learning how to build a successful strategy on Facebook. Once you know how the algorithm works, you can download and implement my list of 10 tips for increasing your organic reach on Facebook. Head over to megbrunson.com reach to learn more. So I'm going to start this episode a little differently today. I'm going to start with a quick story. My oldest daughter was always smart. She was one of those kids who developed skills ahead of other kids her age. She walked early. She talked early. She counted to 10 and sang her ABCs early. So when she started school and struggled, I was completely dumbfounded. Things got progressively worse Through her diagnosis with ADHD, we tried diet changes, therapy, and even tons of different medications. But in first grade, I feel like we really hit rock bottom. She was kicked out of her private school, a school that simply didn't have to cooperate with her IEP. It's for this reason that I'm so personally sensitive to how we educate kids labeled with ADHD and really any kids who are struggling in school. We spent so much time in her first school aged years trying to make her fit in the mold. And then I heard a quote that went something like When a flower doesn't bloom, you fix the environment in which it grows, not the flower. And that's when I realized I was taking the wrong approach. Since that time, I've adjusted my parenting and my expectations with her. I've discovered methods of learning that she thrives with, and I credit her business. Endeavor is providing not only a source of pride and accomplishment, but hands on experiences that really make learning fun and memorable for her. So when I met Nicole Connell, I knew she needed to join me to discuss the correlation between ADHD and entrepreneurship. Nicole is an educator and mentor in the Bay Area. Although she's a certified educational therapist, she prefers the title Personal Learning Fairy Godmother. She loves supporting children to stay connected to their inner knowing and big ideas. She helps parents see the brilliance in their children even if they don't fit into the box and advocates for perspective and paradigm shifts in the educational realm. Nicole, thank you so much for being here with me today. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. So, I just shared my experiences, my my family's, you know, background with with education and ADHD. Can you shed some light on how, how common
1: this is? Yeah, you are so not alone. And that is what I tell a lot of parents. Um, I don't have numbers or statistics for you. But I I do have six years of experience of seeing these really brilliant kids um, just not fit in. And the typical approach is, Fix the child. It's like we we pathologize them, and we don't look at the other part of it. Um, so I, I think a lot of people are still trying to see what well what's wrong with the child, um, and and they haven't quite taken the lens that you've taken, um, which is to look at the environment. So I I think it's calm very common, and it's becoming even more common, unfortunately.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about? where you started? Because you started in the school system, right? What was your role within the school system?
1: Yeah. Well, and even before I was in this, well, when I was a student in the school system, I was Miss 4.0. I could sit down, I could be quiet quiet I could do what the teacher said I I was like the golden child um, and I really saw that I was afforded this privilege this like brain privilege because my brain was the ideal school type brain um, that I, I was treated as as better than other children in hindsight because I was easier and and as a teacher I, I can I can see when kids are easier sometimes it's easier to treat them a little differently even though that's that sounds bad. Um, And so I was very much like exactly what you wanted in school. And then I had a pretty massive breakdown in college, because I did everything that everyone told me to do. And then I was graduating. And I was like, well, everyone said I was going to be so successful. And I was so smart. But what happens after undergraduate, I only know how to be a student. So in that moment, I Questioned everything, what parents told me about school, what they told me about smart. And I was just really lost. Um, and fortunately, I'd always loved children. So I found my way back into education. And those kids, oh my gosh, they, they really reminded me of who I really was. And I could see like the different children, like there were some children um, in the classroom. I was an assistant. I was a classroom assistant after um, college in a Montessori school. And I could see the children who were like me and they did well in school. And then I also saw the other children who just couldn't sit still, couldn't do everything. And when I was a kid, I used to think like, gosh, what's, you know, what's going on? They're not doing what the teacher says but I learned so much from those kids. And so that really transformed how I viewed the children who don't fit the mold. Um, And then I had my own kindergarten classroom and I had, there was a lot of behavior stuff. And I really came to see behavior as communication because a lot of these children weren't being listened to. And so they were speaking with their actions. Um, And, I knew I couldn't, in my capacity as a kindergarten teacher, go as deep with some of these kids as I wanted to. So then I found this field of educational therapy. Um, and it's this little niche field that helps kids one-on-one. And then I got into that field because I was like, well, I can only do so much as a kindergarten teacher. So I want to shift to the, the one-on-one. And so I've been in that role for about the past six years so um, I work privately so people will call me and and send their kids to me and I work with them after school um, so that's a little bit about how I I got to where I am now are
0: there are there people in roles like yours in other school districts like is that a common offering
1: unfortunately given uh, this and I, I can't speak for every state I'm working I'm more familiar with California because I live in California. Um, but unfortunately schools often don't have, they just don't have the resources to provide one-on-one support to every child that needs it. And um, I started working mainly um, in the realm of dyslexia. And those kids are really ones that fall through the cracks because they often can keep up in class. So they might not qualify for an IEP. And even if they qualify, qualify for an IEP, I haven't really seen very many kids get the type of one-on-one services that would really be most beneficial for them.
0: Can you just break down what an IEP is just in case there are parents listening who aren't sure? Yeah.
1: So um, they're in the special ed world. That's that's the term. So when your child is having difficulty, there's kind of two different avenues you can go. You can go IEP or 504, and and sometimes it, it yeah, depends what's going on and what the school district, it, it seems like everyone is different. Um, but often it will start with testing um, and then they will determine if they qualify for services or not. And I, I'm actually co-authoring a book with a 14 year old on, on dyslexia and getting her opinion on the whole process And she calls the IEP the not-so-supportive support plan. Um, So, and I, I, that's my personal favorite definition of it. Um, It's probably not what the public school education system would say. They would say it's a support plan with there's goals and there's testing and there's a meeting. And, um, but she sums it up with, she calls it the not-so-supportive support plan.
0: My three oldest of my four have had IEPs. At some stage in their career, <laughs> their educational career, and um, they're tough. It's it's tough, especially as a parent if you're not familiar. Like you really have to be the advocate for your child because the school is. I don't want to say they don't have your child's best interest in heart because I think they, many of those teachers and administrators do, but they're so they're limited by budgets and by I don't want I don't know if it's rules or. There might be a better word for it. Bureaucracy. <laughs> yeah. Trying to keep the budgets down. And and it's so different by state. We started in New York and in New York, one of my kids was getting speech therapy three days a week for 30 minutes. So 90 minutes a week. The therapist came to our house one on one and we moved to Arizona. And she had to go through, you know, the 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 change of states, the change in process and she was approved for 90 minutes a month in a group. Like, that's a huge difference. Yes, yes. Okay, well, that was a little tangent, but <laughs> <laughs> this is a very frustrating system. So what, what can you share? What would you like to share with parents who have children who are struggling in school?
1: I think the biggest thing I can offer is really perspective shift and view shifts in the age of the internet. It's really easy to go online and freak out. I mean, I do it like when sometimes I'm like, what's wrong? Oh, let me Google this. Um, and it can become this frenzy of, oh my gosh, something must be wrong with my child. Um, and that can be a rabbit hole of, of epic proportions. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of information on, on the internet, um, some of it which might not be helpful. And it can create this feeling um, from the parent unintentionally of something is wrong with my child, therefore I must fix you. And I think the biggest thing I can offer is to take a deep breath and remember every single child has areas of gifts and areas of struggle. And some of them, Their gifts are in alignment with the school system like mine were I could sit down I could do all the directions My areas of struggle weren't really highlighted in school because I could do what the school game wanted Um, Mm -hmm. But if you have a child that their gifts are not in alignment with that system um, There's nothing wrong with your child like nothing. There's nothing wrong with them. It's a misfit um, so yeah, my number one thing is to shift away from what's wrong with the child to what's wrong with the fit between my child and the education system. And the, as we know, the American education system has a lot of problems, like lots of them. So shifting towards that, I think is one of the most helpful things that I can offer as they start a journey on how to best support their child. Okay, and one more. <laughs> one more, too, um, is to listen to your child during this process. Um, a lot of times I hear from children that they get upset that their parents outsource their, their, um, their knowledge and power to experts. So if, if they do uh, testing uh, through the IEP, that the parents will listen to that testing and view it as truth um, when really there there's a lot of issues with testing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so listening to the children and remembering it's a misfit between the child and the environment, not
0: the child. And I obviously love that shift in perspective. And I relate a lot to you as a child. You know, that was me in school. I was maybe not always a 4.0, but I mean, never below a 3.5. <laughs> you know, like I was always a high performing student. Um, and I think that made trying to help my oldest difficult because she'd come to me even in kindergarten and first grade with questions about math. And, you know, math's not that difficult in kindergarten and first grade. And I couldn't, I couldn't figure out how to break it down in a way that she would understand it because it came so easily to me that I never had to problem solve it myself and I, I felt like I couldn't, I didn't have the skills to help her. I don't know if that makes sense.
1: Oh, it makes complete sense. And you're also touching on this, which is a phenomenon in school, is because often who becomes teachers, often it's people who did well in school. So then it creates this chasm between teachers who maybe breeze through school. And I can't speak for every teacher, but a lot of the teachers I encounter, I believe, were good students. So it's even harder to know how to support this child that's so different. So it's like a daily occurrence, depending on what classroom your child is in.
0: Well, and I think that makes sense too. If you think about a kid who struggled in school, like my oldest, she doesn't like school because it's a struggle. So why would she choose to live the rest of her life with a career in school? She wouldn't. So that does totally make sense. And I never taken it that far. I'd always just looked at it with how I re- or how I was able to help or unable to help her.
1: Well, another piece of our American education system is age segregation. We put them in ages by themselves. Um, and when I was a Montessori teacher, it's multi-age classrooms. So you, the teacher actually, I mean, the teacher does help and, and things, but if a six-year-old is struggling with some math concept, the teacher could just say, Well, go, you know, they just learned it. The seven year old over there, or maybe it's another six year old, or maybe it's the eight year old, they just learned it. Have them go explain it to them. And they're actually like way better at explaining <laughs> things because they just learned them. So I think not having a mix of ages in school it is hard for children to learn to the best of their ability. So if your child was in a multi age classroom, she could have gotten that potentially from mm-hmm. another child.
0: That's interesting too. Yeah. So, what, how, how do you create opportunities for kids to shine?
1: Well, this is one of my favorite areas, and I'm a bit of a renegade in the educational therapy world. I, I don't practice, um, exactly like I learned in grad school um, because they they tend to use words like remediation um, and, and this kind of this fixing model and that just never really resonated with me. So part of my philosophy and my one-on-one work has always been to support the tricky and nurture the amazing. And the biggest thing, it sounds vague, but it's mainly just creating space for it and just following the child's interests and... It varies so much for child to child, but like whatever they're into and love, just like nurture that and go with it and follow it up and, and ask about it um, and empower them to follow their own passions. And maybe that's a project. Maybe that's they just come in to my session and talk about it. Um, yeah, so that's mainly from the realm of my work is, is how I, I kind of ma- I just make space for it. Um, and I, I view it as really important. So it's a priority. So every session has to have that. So I had one, um, girl who we would use some of our session for her to teach me how to do a cartwheel because I had never learned. And she is actually a natural teacher, a natural coach, and she was amazing and she needed space to express that. Um, so in my work, that's how I do it. But I'm sure, you know, as a parent, there's a lot of other ways to do that. And The first step I think is making it a priority and creating space for it.
0: Awesome. Now, what have you learned from the kids that you're working with?
1: Oh my gosh, so much. Like every child that I've worked with, I've learned something different. I think the biggest lessons that I'm learning right now is almost around like the meta structure of how we view diagnosis and how we treat children. This, yeah, this is probably my biggest aha now is I had one student, um, tell me, she's like, you know, I think Nicole, this whole diagnosis and this whole testing thing is for the parents' egos is for them to feel like they're not a bad parent because their child doesn't fit the norm. And I was like, Whoa, (laughs) like, wow, I could see that. Um, so the biggest learning I'm in right now is, is around questioning how we view children who are different, how we test them, how we treat them, and how we label them. Um, yeah, and, and yeah, I've got one right now who is on a crusade to really change these, up, these things up, and she just can't believe that like we, we call things attention deficit hyperactive disorder So that's my biggest lesson. They've taught me a lot of amazing lessons, Um, but that's the biggest right now that's coming up for me.
0: Now, I'm just curious, how old are the kids that you work with? You mentioned 14 before, but what's like the range?
1: Um, Right now, I'm mainly working with teenagers, um, but I've worked with as young as four and as old as adults.
0: I love that the student was able to relate it to the ego of the parents because I feel like at least for a time, maybe even sometimes still, it's hard to know sometimes when you're trying to self-reflect. But I definitely think I've relied on on the diagnosis as a crutch, you know, because it's easy to feel like she's always getting into trouble or, you know, she's getting into trouble more than other kids. And to be able to say, well, it's because she has this diagnosis. And now that's not to say that I excuse her behaviors and that we're not you know, trying every day to make her, uh, you know, a, a better person like we do for all of our kids. But just having that, like you said, that little bit of reassurance that it's not a reflection on my parenting, that she's not fitting into that precise mold. And I have just between my older two children, they're complete opposites. My second daughter is very much the Folding hands on her desk and sitting still and listening and straight A's. And if she gets a B, she cries like very much different. So I just feel like that's very impactful, you know? Yeah, definitely. Now, there's a quote that you and I threw around before we um hopped on this call and it's a quote from Todd Herman who we've actually in previous episodes um numerous guests have have mentioned him quoted him talked about some of his programs like the 90 day year and things like that and i'm not sure where the quote came from like in what context but he said in school they labeled you ADHD now they call you an entrepreneur and i feel like that so perfectly ties all of this together with this podcast. So what are your thoughts on that quote? And how have you seen evidence of the truth of that in your work?
1: I love that quote so much. I saw it a few years ago on like his Facebook group when he was promoting the 90 day program. And it just resonated with me. And I said, yes, because um, it, it hits on this, the misalignment of the traits we value in school, we value a certain set of traits that basically kids who receive an ADHD diagnosis will just like not excel in sitting still following directions that are kind of boring. (laughs) Like, (laughs) um, we, we think that those traits are so important and they are in school. But then as I experienced school is very different from the real world. So a lot of the traits that these kids have actually make them prone to excel in the workplace, and I think it's beyond just entrepreneurs. I think you could substitute artist, creative. You could substitute a whole bunch of other things for entrepreneur. But I love that it touches on the the traits that school wants are very different than what the workplace in the real world wants, and that it's not these kids. Um, and it also brings up in me. Uh, the danger of our school system valuing these certain traits is because what I see is these kids who get these labels who I think are geniuses and could come up with amazing things because they do every time you talk to them. Um, I think the danger is that they go through school feeling like something's wrong with them, and then they're flawed. Um, But really, they're just gifts that are untapped and unable to be met in the school system.
0: Do you think that the focus in school is too much on preparing them for college and not necessarily preparing them for anything other than college?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's definitely one biggie, right? And preparing them for college, and even that is how well they're doing that is is debatable because I remember being in college and people were saying like, well, these high school kids aren't even prepared for college. But you're right, like having that academic track for everyone. And we're seeing that we need tradespeople. And tradespeople can actually make good money. Like we need plumbers. Like if we have houses, we need plumbers or uh, air conditioning people. And they can actually make really good money. Um, So other education systems will have an option to get out of school earlier. So I think that's one part. I think another big issue in American education is the standards that we create these times and places in which a child is supposed to achieve X, Y, Z. Um, and to me, they seem a little arbitrary and uh, can cause a lot of problems when kids aren't meeting them. So I think this whole standard bell curve approach to diverse children, because every child is diverse, we're all different, it just doesn't make sense. And it leads to a lot of heartache for those who can't fit in.
0: Do you have any tips for parents who who have, you know, who have a child that's having these issues and they're not fitting in the box at school? I know for me, we've tried homeschooling and it's just not the right fit for our family. And I think that we kind of have to recognize that. Like I, I'm not going to feel guilty about it. It's just the way it is, you know? Um, but do you have tips for people like that who homeschooling may not be an option. So public school is where their child will remain but how parents can support their children between classes, between school days?
1: Yeah. Well, I think first thing is depending where you are, sometimes you can check into charter schools. Sometimes those are worse. Sometimes those are better. Um, But in the Bay Area, there are actually some cool charter schools that are able to provide, in my mind, a better perspective around differences than others. So you never know. So there are charter schools. I think if a child is going to be in the educational system, then the parent has to be so firm in knowing that there's nothing wrong with their child and deeply listening to their child. Because a lot of times it seems like children will come home and be like, I hate school, like my teacher, da, 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 da. And it's easy to be like, well, honey, you have to go to school. And but your teacher, we, we have this like authority thing where the teacher is, always knows. Um, and sometimes a teacher doesn't know. And and I really believe that each child is an expert on themselves. So listening to your child and taking their concerns and worries seriously, I think is huge. I love doing letter writing with kids because a lot of times kids um, get a bit marginalized in their voice isn't heard or you know we just we just ignore their perspective. And if they feel like there's too much homework or there. this has happened to me where where they feel like their teacher is being disrespectful to them and, and kind of bullying them, um, which unfortunately does happen, um, is listening to that and then giving them a space to express that and advocate for their needs.
0: So with, with the letter writing, like you were just mentioning, do you have the student write a letter to the teacher and then do you actually deliver that letter? Like, do you worry, my concern would be, worrying about stepping on toes do you know what I mean like (laughs) overstepping into the teacher's space do you deliver the letters do you think that's appreciated or or respected
1: yeah I mean that's a great question and it it depends teacher to teacher right some teachers really want to hear and some teachers just don't um My own bias is that the children's perspective is very important and needs to be heard, whether or not action is taken based on that. um, I think just the act of expressing it and someone taking it seriously is powerful. So depending on the teacher, yeah, you could send an email, you could write a letter and you could even, you know, depending on (laughs) how far you want to go and depending what school system you're in, if it's public, private, um, you can go to administration too. So if a child is raising a concern that is pretty concerning, I believe, I mean, and I don't, you know, I don't have to suffer the ramifications because I'm not that child and that child's parent. So yes, you do need to consider that. But I, I think that, staying silent in fear of stepping on someone's toes is as a message you're sending your child. And if that's in alignment with your parenting philosophy, you know, cool. But a lot of these kids, I think, really do want to express themselves and don't have that, that vantage point.
0: True. I'm just, I'm really grateful that you were able to come on and, and share some insight on the education system and ways that you're, approaching kids that don't fit in that box, you know, with ADHD and other differently abled kids, you know. I really appreciate it. Can you can you share where can people learn more about you, find you online on social media? Yeah,
1: so right now the main way to get in touch with me is through my website which is nicoleconnell.com. Um, I currently have a private practice in the Bay Area, but do consultations online as well. And I've got some fun projects down the pipeline. Because as I do this work, I just get more and more passionate about putting different content out there than what you'll find on when you Google ADHD. So if you want to know about those as they arrive, um, you can check out my website.
0: Thank you so much. I think it's easy to feel alone and helpless and like you've done something wrong or you're not doing something good enough. And it's really important for me that other parents who are in this situation know that they're not alone and they're not doing anything wrong. And in fact, they've got so much opportunities to make things better. So I really appreciate you taking the time and, and being here with us today. Thank you so much. No, oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. You'll find all of the links mentioned and this week's show notes at megbrunson.com 40. Last week, we met Mariana Ruiz. She's a certified business coach and consultant and an international best-selling author who helps seasoned coaches and consultants scale their business by creating and launching six-figure group coaching programs. She uses her background in brain science, hospital administration, and 12 years of marketing sales and business experience to get results for her clients at scale, marketing in a way that attracts ideal clients and converting followers to clients through service-based selling. She's been featured in various podcasts, blogs, and online courses, The Huffington Post, Today.com, The Millionaire Insider Extravaganza, and she comes to Familypreneur to help us identify the ripples of impact that our business can have on the world, which is going to help us overcome some of those money blockers, those sales blockers, with just those simple mindset shifts. It's a great episode that everybody should take the time to listen to, so if you missed it last week, make sure you go back and check it out. Next week, we're going to bring on a systems expert and productivity geek, Marina Darlow. She sees her job as helping impact-driven entrepreneurs get 10 to 20 more productive hours a week, stop leaking money, and prevent stress fuel breakdown. We could all use a little bit of that, right? She's an engineer by training, and she came to a realization a couple years ago, working for a conglomerate, is not as inspiring as she wanted her work to be. So her quest for inspiration brought her to found Vision Framework, a company that builds small purpose-driven businesses from the inside and helps entrepreneurs run their companies with ease by putting effective, easy-to-use, and fun systems in place. An episode that you surely don't want to miss. So subscribe to the podcast today so that you get an alert when that episode is released next week. Thanks, guys. I will see you next week. Bye. Let's speak